0: Happy birthday to Nelson W. Piles, the creator of the Wicked Library and the voice of the librarian. Nelson's birthday is, as this airs, today, Wednesday, February 22nd. A big thanks to Nelson for everything that he did to create the show, his continued support, and of course, happy birthday. If you'd like to wish Nelson happy birthday yourself, you can find him at Nelson W. Piles on Twitter. Go ahead, send him a message, you'll like it. Or maybe even better yet, head on over to Amazon.com, find Nelson W. Piles, and pick up one of his books. He has a great collection out. He also wrote the novel Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes, and he's been featured in a bunch of other stuff. You can find him over at Amazon.com. The Wicked Library welcomes a new sponsor for the remainder of season seven. In addition to our fine sponsors at Road Microphone and Legends, Myths, and Whiskey Podcast, we now have Zombie Lips. And hopefully, you don't have zombie lips, but if you do, you need to pick up their antidote. Designed to relieve conditions like eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, these things, bug bites and the endless ailments we all wish never happened that do it's all natural ingredients full body use universal antidote to the human condition it's a deep cleansing accelerated healing prodigiously antiseptic pain relieving pain reducing antimicrobial carry along they have a really cool website that's a lot of fun again all natural ingredients check them out at zombie lips.squarespace.com and click on buy the antidote to get yours
1: Society Thirteen Podcast Network, redefining podcasts. Society Thirteen I like to listen.
2: <laughs>
1: Welcome to Channel Nine of the S T R Y Radio Network, where stories live.
0: And welcome to the Wicked Library. Today's episode is a little bit special. We have for you five collected stories, two which have never been heard on the Wicked Library before, two that were only heard by those who read our newsletter back when we were doing that, and one that was only on Patreon for our Patreon supporters. We always like to do something special for those who support the show, so we're going to continue doing bonus stories on Patreon, meaning that you'll get to hear them before anybody else. And once we get a collection of four or five, six, however many it takes to get us to around an hour, we're going to go ahead and collect those together and put them out there for the big audience as well. The goal of the Wicked Library has always been to find a way to get the work of new artists, authors, and composers out to as wide of an audience as possible so that you'll consider going and picking up their work elsewhere. That being said, we never want to limit the audience that the authors that contribute their stories get. So while you do get to hear them first on Patreon, if you support the show, everybody eventually gets to hear them. If you haven't supported the show on Patreon, you can do so by heading over to the Wicked Library's Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. In addition to these bonus stories, we also give you access to our back catalog our archives. You get cool stuff like mugs and t-shirts and just this week we added a new reward in partnership with our good friend john towers he creates these amazing zombie portraits he usually only does these at events so you'd have to go to a comic book convention where dr towers is setting up shop in order to get one but we're going to go ahead and get them out to you folks that support us at certain reward levels on Patreon. So head over to thewickedlibrary.com and click on our Patreon link, or you can head over to patreon.com forward slash wicked library to do that thing. And now without further ado, why don't we go ahead and get into today's show with five tales by five wicked authors.
1: seat and relax I am your library there's nothing to be afraid of yet hold on to yourselves morals and ghouls this is going to be a dark ride we'll leave the lights on for now no talking it's story time at the wicked library <laughs>
0: One Hour by Dean Bevington Zombies were nearly extinct. The undead outbreak had been brought under control before it reached a point of no return. But a few relifers, as they'd been nicknamed, still stumbled around rural areas looking for flesh. Autumn's cool veil covered the land. Daniel was outside chopping small logs he needed for the wood burner in his living room. Quack. The first log split at the same time as something bit into his shoulder. In pain and shock, he pushed back on his assailant, turned around, and swung the hatchet at it. The blade pierced its neck, blood fountained out. Daniel managed to shove it to the ground, then hacked its neck until the relifer's head detached. Why me? Why couldn't you be satisfied with animal flesh? Daniel screamed at the thing lying at his feet. Realizing his fate, he sobbed. In an hour, he'd be a monstrosity. He resigned himself to what had to be done. Leaving the logs and the corpse, he returned to the house. He also closed the windows, locked the doors, and threw the keys out of the letterbox. Hands shaking, He picked up the cordless phone and dialed. Hello, the Relifer hotline. Christine speaking. I want to report a Relifer. Daniel's voice quivered in response. Okay, stay calm and tell me where it is, Christine replied. It'll be here in an hour. That's the incubation period, right? What do you mean? Are you telling me you've been bitten? Yes, but don't send them yet, please. I want someone to talk to in my last hour, Daniel pleaded. I've locked myself in and thrown out the keys, so I'm not going anywhere. And the real lifer who bit me isn't going anywhere either. Where's the one that bit you? Outside. Don't worry. I chopped its head off. What's your name? Daniel Woodman, Coat. I'm sorry, Daniel. You must know that we have to deal with any re-lifers immediately to prevent another outbreak. Our people are sharpshooters. You won't feel anything, Christine said calmly. I know. Please. I'm not going anywhere. There's no reason for me to lie about that. I don't want to end my days knowing I'll be shot like a rabid dog. Okay, Daniel. I'll talk to you until you can no longer talk. We may learn something about the transition, so I'm recording this call. (sighs) Oh, thank you, Daniel said in a relieved tone. After he died and transitioned, Daniel wouldn't appreciate the view of the beautiful countryside from his living room window, or the grace of the occasional deer passing through his fields. The view was the reason for buying this house. He would no longer sit in his favorite armchair, enjoying a glass of red wine or read one of the many books on his shelves. Cannibalistic hunger, he knew, would be the only urge. The most primitive part of his brain left in control, and the humanity dissolved, leaving him less than an animal. They, at least, had instincts to do more than just eat. He wondered if Relifers recognized familiar people or sounds if only as a faint nagging feeling in their flesh-obsessed, shriveled mind. They talked about Daniel's life, of how he'd dreamed of moving to the countryside as he slowly burned out with city living. The claustrophobia brought on by throngs of people everywhere made the decision for him. Due to the nature of his work, he had the luxury to work from home and enjoyed the opportunity to take long walks. Standing by the window, trying to enjoy his favorite view for the last time, Daniel said, Something's happening, Christine. My vision is blurring, and the color is draining away. I'm looking through the window, and it's like seeing an old sepia photograph. As the hour ticked by, a chill spread throughout his body. And mind. He put the remaining wood left inside the house into the wood burner, eventually getting a fire started after fumbling with the matches. Have you ever had a day without food and felt the hunger pangs, Christine? This is worse. The gnawing inside my guts is almost unbearable. I need meat. Daniel slurred into the phone. You're not trying to leave the house, are you? Christine asked, worried that she'd been too understanding. No, I'm... Go to kitchen, he responded indistinctly, then dropped the phone. Daniel shuffled into the kitchen. Dizziness clouded his thoughts. His limbs didn't work smoothly anymore. It was as though his body coordination had been knocked off kilter by drinking far too much wine. His foot caught on a table leg, and he fell, almost stopping himself by reaching out for the tabletop. Back on his feet, Daniel reached the fridge and flung the door open. A pack of minced beef caught his carnivorous attention, but the plastic wrapping prolonged his hunger. Gray hands ripped at the packaging until it shredded. He pushed the meat into his mouth awkwardly, like a toddler left alone with a gooey cake. Daniel,
3: are you still there?
0: Christine asked on hearing the commotion. No response came. She heard footfalls in the background, the sound of things breaking, and the primal grunting of a relifer. Sorry, Daniel. The squad's on its way now. You won't suffer for much longer, she said before hanging up the call. (laughs) A Lament from the Dying By Keith McDuffie like it when I die. Except today. Today, dying sucks. This is a good day to die. Low Dog first said that. Little Bighorn. It wasn't Crazy Horse like most people think and definitely not the Klingons. But today is not a good day for that. It's a pretty awful day for that if you want me to be perfectly honest. And why shouldn't I be? Honest, I mean. It's the last thing anyone's going to get out of me. Might as well cut the bullshit. You want to know which was my favorite time dying? The first. Nothing's beat the first time. Not in all these years. Sounds weird, I know. All this time. All these deaths. And there wasn't a time top the first Nope. It's like your first girl, a first child. Skis on a virgin snow. Nothing like it. Battleship explosion off the coast of San Diego. 27 other men died with me that day. The lot of us were on the upper deck when the blast went off. Sent every one of us clear to kingdom come. I remember the feeling, being airborne like that the roar and the heat of the flames at my back, the salty air lightly stinging my face with the blueness of the ocean coming to meet me. I think back at that moment often these days and wonder, what if that time, that very first time, had been the last, the satisfying final act in what's now become an overextended performance? Like a TV program that doesn't know to quit on a high note. A series finale that should be orgasmically fulfilling, but only flounders and flops. On and on it goes. Just when you think it couldn't get any better, you turn out to be right. But the greedy bastards running the show don't hear that. They hear syndication dollars. Seriously? That's it? After all that, this is how the whole thing ends. And we shrug it off and... move on to the next thing and the next and... A final footnote in Wikipedia, and that's it. Sometimes the end pans out. But most of the time, it's disappointing. Like now. Who would have thought I'd go out like this... Like this the Jars she knew. she was the one who was responsible for starting all of what I am. Did you know that? Kicked the whole thing off. Back then, that that gypsy, fortune teller, whatever she was telling people she was said to me that the signs told her I'd be living a long life of defying death but Gordy she says to me Gordy in the end death will defy you death will defy you damn right I would have settled for other ways to go like the bar fight in Arizona ah bar fights I seem to find myself in the middle of those the most. Sometimes I come out of them with just a few scratches. Arizona, though, (laughs) that was a proper end. Full blown gunfight. Took one point blank in between the eyes from a piece of shit they called a Remington 75. I flew back and clear through a window. Landed so hard I broke my leg along with the porch boards. Did I laugh my ass off? When I found out it would take over a year to recover from that, I wasn't laughing so much anymore. But I kept myself busy and out of trouble for the most part. I was back doing what I do in only three months. But wonders never cease. I've been banged up plenty of times before and since then. No, not nearly as bad. There are the bar fights, of course. (laughs) Had this freak in full armor crack my shoulder with a nasty-looking morning star. Had a Louisville slugger swung across the back of my knees once. Still hurts to think about that one. (laughs) Even been pistol-whipped by a German Luger. No permanent injuries, but I sure got my bell rung a time and again. I've had my share of close calls, too. This one time, out on the rock, one of my so-called colleagues was supposed to drive a shiv through my prison uniform while I leaned against this barred door. You know, make it look real convincing and all that. Moved more than a hair too far to the left, nearly nicked a kidney. I got transferred to a local hospital for a week to heal up from that one. See, that's the big misconception people have about me. I can be broken. Get sick. I get hurt. I get hurt a lot. Sometimes it sticks and sometimes, well, I breeze on through it. I patch up, heal up, hold my chin up. Then I move on. Just like I always do. Or, I guess I did. I always knew when I was gonna die. And I don't mean now, I mean all the other times. You know, when it wasn't real. This. <laughs> this damn near snuck up on me. Now, here it is. It's real, and it's bearing down on me, and I'm pissed off. That's why I'm passing what little time I have left to talk about the good old days. So many years, so much younger, and God damn it, so much fun to die. Remember that time my head was cut clean off my neck with a chainsaw? That's right, way before your time, but holy hot damn, what a messy scene that was. The only lasting damage was how long it took to get my fucking hair clean. God is my witness. My tub ran red for three days after that. Smelled like holy hell. Like the time with the guts. You know, when the Vietnamese landmine blew the lower half of my body off. Right. Right. Mm, Way before your time. But I've told you this before. Anyway. Guts were spread out all over the ground. Even I thought it was for real that time. I had to wait a good two hours before it was clear for me to get back up again. You know, like I said, I knew what I was getting into. Even then, I knew what was coming. Ugh. Why did I wait so long to drink this? <sighs> Who says the older the scotch, the better? <laughs>
2: Hmm,
0: I've traveled around with this bottle of rot gut for God knows how long or how far. Now, <clears throat> here we are, finally with a fitting occasion for cracking the damn thing open. It might as well be cat piss. Mm. Ah, I'll have you know I was never one for the hard stuff. Least of not this old Scottish shit fucking Scots. Can't tell you how much trouble they've caused me. But wine, wine has always been my poison preferera. But it doesn't keep as long as people think either. If You want to know the truth. Uh, it's good that I can talk to someone who knows what I can do. I haven't really told many people about, you know, what I am. Thankfully, it doesn't really come up much. I sometimes get older people who think they've seen me somewhere before. I just laugh and brush it off. Tell them they're senile and change the subject. I got no family to speak of, not anymore. Who's left? No one. Just me. But they all knew. They knew what I was. You know what? All that fear about me made them care all the more. So why in God's name am I still hiding from it now? I tell you, I have no idea. I've been to countless shrinks, you know. told them the real deal, and they all listened. They played their game, told me I had a gift and all that, and I shouldn't have to hide it from people. Right. Susan found out the truth we were dating thought i was nuts and she left me so what the hell good did all those head shrinkers do they made it worse is what they did made me crawl further down into my hole you know what the most ridiculous thing about all this is anyone who doesn't know about me can figure it out easily enough easy peasy dig around with a computer Find an old photo here, a new photo there, put two and two together, you know? It would only be a matter of time. But I'm through hiding. It might be a shitty thing to die like this, but I'm going to die. Right here. And the bullshit's tagging along. At least I have that going for me. So bring it on, Death. I may not be ready to take your ugly ass on this time. But I am not afraid. I will finally plant my ass into that empty seat at the devil's table, look that bastard square between the horns, and say, Well, you got me, you foul son of a bitch. Now pass me that bottle of piss will you call wine, and toast to me. That's right, to me, the late Gordon Wheeler. Cheater of death and master of lies. For he has come here hoping that this shithole called hell is ready for him. For he is far from ready to retire. (laughs) Won't that be something? Maybe I should look forward to that moment. Maybe it's not such a bad day to die after all. Oh. In Memorandum, Gordon D. Wheeler 1928-2015 to Gordon Dennis Wheeler was born August 28, 1928 in Chicago, Illinois, to Roy and Martha Wheeler and passed away June 28, 2015 in Los Angeles, California, after suffering a long illness. He was 86. Having spent most of his early childhood in several Illinois suburbs, Gordon found early work as a performer with Madame Margera's Circus Maximus, initially as a stunt clown, and later advancing to become a main performer for the event for a brief period. During his time at Maximus, he was discovered by famed filmmaker and director Aaron Rustin, who went on to employ Gordon as a stuntman in many of his most well-known films. Gordon's first Hollywood appearance, the 1946 action war film The Battle of Two Bays, went on to win several Academy Awards, including Best Special Effects. Gordon eventually moved to Los Angeles, where he continued to perform death-defying stunts in the 17 of Rustin's films, including westerns Henry's Apostles, A Native in Bisbee, and The Roar and the Thunder. Other appearances in non-Rustin pictures include the Vietnam War epic The 8 of Clubs and the premiere of the slasher flick series Blood of My Blood. At times Gordon served as a stand-in for rehearsal performances, including several scenes opposite actress Susan Franks in the film Sovereign's Daughters. Gordon has no surviving family. He was preceded in death by his brother Raymond and his nephew Donald and Jacob. A celebration of Gordon Dennis Wheeler's life will be held on the grounds of the St. Ambrose Mortuary and Funeral Home on June thirtieth.
3: Hi, this is Nelson Piles from Society 13 and the creator of The Wicked Library. Dan Foydick, the current host and producer of The Wicked Library, has started a Patreon campaign with a lot of great perks for those of you who want to keep the show alive and most of all, free. It's an expensive endeavor to keep a podcast like The Wicked Library up and running. Website costs, equipment, storage for all the episodes. It takes a lot of money to keep a show like this free for all of you. Besides that... Think of the librarian. Yeah, the poor soul. Imagine if he had to go get a job somewhere else.
1: Hey, new guy! Come here, we got a complaint. Hello, kid. Uh, I mean, Steve. This guy ordered chicken fingers. What the hell are these? Oh, chicken fingers. I thought you said children's fingers. I always have a few of those on hand. Get it? Aw, <laughs> oh, you're fired. Oh? Oh, well. Guess it's back to the DMV. <laughs> and stop laughing like that. It's spooky. Promise?
3: So, if you want to help your favorite podcast, and especially to keep the librarian off the streets, go to www.patreon.com backslash wickedlibrary, and thank you for your support.
0: The Heart of a Madman by Gwendolyn Keist Among the ruins of the castle, he waited for her. He was always waiting, alone atop a barren hill, veiled beneath the smoke-stained turrets that had fallen in the fire. Lanterns from the tavern and the quiet homes in the valley reflected up to his hideaway. Grimacing, he turned away. He hated the light. Even the gossamer haze of the moon made him feel too exposed. He didn't want to remember. His scars, glinting beneath the constellations of Hercules and Aquila, made him remember. The wire stitches had long ago come unknotted, yet his skin, like a withered papyrus map, told of how he was created as an amalgam of men the hands of a blacksmith, the legs of a quarryman, the lungs of a miner. Only his mind was his own. His mind and his heart that was what he told himself as he watched the lone path to the castle the one she took each year to reach him the moon traversed the sky counting the minutes that passed without sight of her he struggled to catch his breath was this the moment he'd feared the time he would wait for her in vain illness or a new love true love would find her and she would no longer have need of him he would wait for her this night but she wouldn't arrive the dirt road unfurled like a spool of black lace before him the last lights of the village winked off one at a time like fireflies retiring for the summer and it was as though the whole world slumbered midnight waned yet still he was alone If he hadn't been born into madness, the waiting alone would have driven him to it. An hour before dawn, long after the final embers of hope had dimmed inside him, a figure materialized along the road. He knew at once it was her. No one else would brave this cursed path. As she drew nearer, he could see a single red rose clutched between her fingers. His heart wrapped against the sagging prison of his bones. You made it, he whispered. Always, she embraced him. After all, I couldn't miss our anniversary. He held her close, inhaling her sweet scent, thinking of how it wasn't really their anniversary. It was the anniversary of the fire. Twenty five years among the fire scorched rubble. She shivered against his chest. Shall we visit the ashes?" At the far end of the estate, he heaved a stone, exposing the remnants of a room. This was where the blaze had started, inside the laboratory. Lingering silently in the dark was the stone slab, mostly crumbled to dust, where he'd been built. Unlike a natural-born child, he remembered coming into this world. How the shadows had snaked away and the light had found him. And he remembered her. With a complexion the color of moonstone, hers was the first face he'd seen upon awakening. She alone shielded him from the light. And she tried to shield him from something else, too. From the one who'd made him. Who'd prodded him. Who was now no more than a pile of char in a darkened corner. She stared at the ash for a long time, never speaking, never stirring. He could no longer bring himself to look into the place where he'd been born, and so he watched her instead and imagined the tale people told about her, the would-be wife of a doctor. She helped her fiancé cobble together a monster. But then the monster awoke, and the castle fell, leaving her less than a widow "'Do the villagers know you still visit this place?' he asked. "'She nodded, her gaze still set on the ash. "'They think I come here to honor him. "'That's why they never follow. "'They want to let me mourn in peace.' "'Peace. "'As though what lived in this castle had ever known peace. "'If not for the fire, "'the doctor with his metal implements and rusted needles and serums and beakers— would never have let his creation know peace. "'Monster,' she said and dropped the rose into the tomb. Together, they turned away, arms intertwined, her fingers tracing the weathered lines on his skin where she herself had stitched the thread. "'You're different every time I see you,' she said, peering into his wrinkled face. "'It's strange. I thought you would stay young forever.' He touched her silver hair. I thought the same of you. Smiling, she pulled him in, and her lips met his. It felt as new as their first kiss, but tonight was better. There was no doctor to catch them, no chains to imprison the monster, no scalpels to embed in a Lovelorn heart. Come back with me, she said. They've mostly forgotten you. And even those who do remember wouldn't recognize you now. He studied the village below as it flickered to life once more. The valley with its glossy stone streets and lamplights at every corner was her home. But it was not his. He belonged in the darkness. Perhaps someday he would brave the light for her. The same way she braved the shadows for him. But not today. "'Maybe next year,' he said, and caressed her hand. "'That elegant hand. "'The hand that had saved him. "'The villagers always assumed he, a monster, "'had been the one to ignite the flames. "'They never guessed it was her lithe fingers, "'soft as satin, that had lit the match. "'I won't let him hurt you again,' she'd said, "'and kept her promise.' With the dawn creeping closer, he escorted her back to the road and watched as she slowly vanished into the distance, ethereal as morning mist. Same night next year, he called after her. Like a ghost, she turned back and smiled. Always. Playground Zero by Jessica McHugh "'Surrender, you pig-headed dog!' Ethan swings his sword, and Mark dives away. The blade nicks Mark's jeans, but he ignores the rip as he spins on his heel. He plucks an arrow from his quiver and primes his bow to fire. "'Stand down,' Ethan says. "'That's an order from your king!' Mark bellows. "'Never!' and draws back the bowstring. "'As long as I live, I will keep fighting!' The beasts are in the castle walls. They're too strong for you to defeat. If we're to survive this war, we must do as they command. Mark lowers his bow. You don't get it, do you? This war is already over to them. But just because we failed doesn't mean we stop trying to win or trying to find out why. Why have they kept us alive? Why are they making us perform like this? With a chop from his blade, Ethan knocks the bow from Mark's hands. The knight pulls a dagger from his boot and brandishes it with his teeth bared. ''We mustn't battle each other,'' he says with the dagger aimed at Ethan's throat. Ethan snarls. ''You speak of this world like it can be saved. If words and weapons can't save us, surrendering definitely won't. Don't you know anything?'' He puffs out his chest and declares, I'm the king. I know everything. Mark turns away, tapping his dagger on the roof of the spiral tube slide. Yeah? So where's my dad? Ethan lowers his sword and whispers, That's not the line, man. Sorry. I just thought... Never mind. Mark exhales. Straightening his spine, he twirls around and slashes the air with his dagger. King, you say? You are no king. You're nothing but a commoner in a stolen crown. The boy's attention is stolen by Lila's heavy sigh. She's lying on her stomach on the plastic playground of Greasley Park, wrapping her hair around her finger until the tip turns purple. When she notices them staring, she unravels it and waves. Don't mind me. Go on. Ethan clears his throat, repositions his feet, and continues. "'How dare you question my supreme rule, Sir Mark? "'I should have your head for that. "'If we don't take action, we'll all lose our heads. "'If I'm the only one who truly wants these creatures destroyed, "'I'll take charge. "'We all want the beasts gone. "'But what's the point of fighting if we know we'll lose?' "'A quick death,' Mark replies. "'Heaven has to be better than this place.' "'What if this was heaven?' Lila mutters." What if we had the best life humans could have, and when those monsters crawled out of the earth, they turned it into hell? What if there's nothing and no one waiting for us? Mark crouches beside her. We can't believe that. We have to believe victory is possible. He pounds his chest as he stands. With God as my witness, I will banish them from our realm and save this broken world from destruction. Shiloh swings around the playground pole and leaps over Lila's body. Her hands clenched beneath her chin as she purrs, "'Oh, Sir Mark, you are so brave. Can you really rid our home of these foul beasts?' Mark sandwiches her hand between his and kisses her cheek. "'For you, my lady, I would do anything.' She fans her face with her free hand as Lila groans. "'Don't listen to that man,' Ethan commands as he slashes the air." Swear your loyalty to me, Lady Shiloh, and I will give you the world. Mark snorts as he shoves himself in Ethan's face. Some gift. This world is a graveyard, my lord, or haven't you looked around lately? Your people are dead. Your golden city is destroyed. There's only us and the monsters imprisoning us for the past year. Everyone you love is dead, Ethan. King Ethan. He ignores Mark's dramatic eye roll and pounds his chest. "'I can protect you, Lady Shiloh. "'This man can only bring you pain. "'Must you possess everything? "'You already have a queen.' "'Lila stands with a growling sigh. "'His queen is tired of playing. "'Come on, Lila, you have to play.' "'Shiloh peers into the smoky distance. "'Stopping isn't worth the risk. "'We don't know anything for sure. "'For all we know, everyone who stopped playing is fine,' she replies.' Mark's dad, my dad, my mom, my mangy cat. Maybe it isn't just us and the monsters. Maybe acting out this scene for them is a joke, just to see how long we'll do it. Ethan leans into her and whispers, Just stick to the game, Lila. You too, Mark. Lifting his chin, he points his sword at his foe. Step away from that foul man, Lady Shiloh. He claims he can slay these monsters, and that may be true, But maybe that's because he's the one who brought them to our kingdom. You're insane, he says. And we're no better in your hands than we are in theirs. He scans the arid world around them and lowers his dagger. He turns to Lila, whispering. Do you really think our parents are safe? She exhales a shuddering breath. I hope so. Maybe I can find out. Ethan grabs Mark's arm, his teeth clenched. You cannot confront such monstrous villains, Sir Mark. As your king, I forbid it. Put a sock in it, Ethan. I'm being serious. That's my lord or your grace. The king should not be addressed so informally. The king is an idiot, Mark barks. Kings, presidents, every stupid grown-up who thought they could save the world with ignorance and empty words, they are to blame. His face reddens as he punches the blocks of the spinning tic-tac-toe game. Look at us now, your grace. We're just as bad as them. We're still pretending when we should be taking action. Lila pats his shoulder. Calm down, Mark. He brushes her off and screams. No! You guys are always shooting me down when I suggest fighting back. Just like my dad telling me to shut up through all those warnings on the news. It was obvious everything was crashing down, and he still left me alone so he could go to work. Mark sighs and runs his fingers through his hair. Work. If having a job means you get drunk all day, I can't wait until I'm old enough to have one. If I'm ever old enough to have one. I doubt any of us will live that long. Giving a bitter bow, he adds, Even you, King Ethan... It's just a game, Shiloh says. Mark's bottom jaw juts out as he spits, Tell that to Eric. Silence falls over the kids. With her chin quaking, Shiloh whimpers. That's not funny. I didn't mean for it to be, he replies. Watching her face crumple in grief, Mark rubs Shiloh's arm. I'm sorry, but maybe Lila's right. Maybe everyone is okay. Maybe the monsters don't care if we play the game. You know that's not true, Ethan says. After what happened when Eric stopped playing, Shiloh covers her ears and screams. Stop it! Stop saying my brother's name! Lila wraps her arms around the girl and pets her hair. It's okay. Everything's going to be alright. I shouldn't have said I wouldn't play. I'm just so tired, she says. But I'll keep playing, I swear, for as long as it takes. Not me. Mark throws down his wooden dagger and crosses his arms over his chest. I can't spend what's left of my life playing a stupid game. I need to find out what happened to the others. If I have to do it alone, so be it. Don't be stupid, Ethan says. Like you said before, this war is over to the monsters. This is their world now. If you take them on by yourself, you'll end up just like Eric, like Travis, like Sharon. Reality isn't as forgiving as this game. Mark directs his face at the sky and shrieks. I don't care. I refuse to play anymore. I refuse to pretend this is the end of the world. The ground vibrates with rhythmic thumps, and the playground equipment shudders. As the other children turn to Mark, their eyes fill with tears. Shiloh sniffles and mules into her hands. Oh, God, Mark, what have you done? I didn't. I didn't. You didn't want to pretend this is the end of the world, Ethan says. Fine. Now we have to accept that it really is the end. With each of the beasts booming footsteps, wasteland dust billows around the playground. It's the only time the kids are glad for their force field prison. Dead plants and rotted garbage comprise the clouds of ash pelting the bubble, but the monster's march also causes remnant corpses decorating the outlying streets to skitter across the vibrating ashtray the kids once called home, smacking the barrier with bones and brittle skin. The children huddle together, quaking as the beast's mass of shadow cloaks the playground in darkness its assailing breath temporarily fogs the force field as it leans in, granting the kids flashes of its mammoth fangs. I'm sorry, Mark whimpers. I didn't think it would come so soon. Shiloh buries her head in his arm, sobbing as she clings to his side. It's okay, he says, rubbing her back. You'll be safe, all of you. I'll sacrifice myself, and when it takes me... I'll find out what happened to my dad, to all our parents, to everyone. Shiloh wails. No, you can't. I need you. He cradles her face and thumbs away a tear. Don't cry, my lady. I vow to you I will slay these beasts and free our realm from their clutches. I will restore this world to its former glory. The beast howls, spraying the invisible dome with strings of blood-speckled saliva. As Mark stands, he opens his arms and approaches the barrier. The force field flickers and disappears as the monster sniffs the boy, who closes his eyes and waits to be taken. His eyes snap open with the scream. The monster's claws clamp around Shiloh and rip her from the playground equipment like a toddler plucks a blade of grass. She flails in its fist shrieking and smacking its fingers until the beast lifts her to its bulbous yellow eyes. Ethan and Lila rush to the edge of the playground equipment, but the restored force field jolts them backward. As the kids wilt from the blow, Shiloh continues to scream. Agitated by the noise, the monster expels a deafening growl and squeezes its fist. The girl's head briefly turns purple before it pops like a grape and splatters the dome. Her pulpy body flops in the monster's hand as it gallops away, rocking the ashy world beneath its hooves. As clumps of Shiloh ooze down the force field, Mark shakes his head in disbelief, his arms still open in surrender. After a minute of silence, he lowers them and sits beside Ethan and Lila. Cowering by the spiral slide, they hold each other and mourn another friend. Mark clears his throat, but his voice still trembles when he says, ''Whose turn is it?'' Lila lifts her head and whispers, ''It's mine.'' The boys remain kneeling, their heads bowed as she stands. Ethan hands over his sword and Lila raises it to the sky. The boys proclaim in unison, Long live the queen.
4: Last Steps by Kelly Perkins I shielded my eyes against the hot orange glare. It was silver, the satellite, liquid like mercury. And the sun was hellacious, beaming off its central sphere, the almost phallic length of it searing my corneas like tuna steaks. And yet, I couldn't look away. Why should I? It was only a matter of time before my air ran out. Before my time ran out. It hadn't really sunk in yet. Couldn't have. I mean, how could someone be faced with certain death and still remain so calm? Or maybe it was the realization my air supply would last me longer if I didn't have a panic attack. Still, I damned the thing bleeding light past my shuttered eyes, mocking me from that foreign sky. Of all the times for communication to be down, for Stevens to be dead, for a routine survey to go awry. Certainly I didn't wish this misfortune on someone else, except for maybe Stevens, the son of a bitch always making passes and rude comments, dismissing rejection and professional recommendations alike. I told him his angle of approach was too steep, but hell, even so, did he really deserve to get mangled like that? Pfft. Considering my current dilemma, the bastard got off easy. I could see mortality winking at me from the horizon of this hellscape, and all I could do was breathe. And scream, as it turns out. Punching the hell out of that communication button I'd had trouble with ever since they plugged a new one into my suit. If it ain't broke, don't fix it is a good adage for a reason. Condor One, this is Reach. Come in. It started out calmly enough, but it soon devolved when I received a little more than static and then a constant buzz, as if a bumblebee had somehow gotten trapped inside my helmet. Might as well have been. I'm allergic to bees. I'm not really sure if that allergy extends beyond the honey farting variety. Didn't matter. My fate was sealed either way death by asphyxiation. Not with a bang or a whimper, but hopefully with a quick loss of consciousness and a supernova of brain waves easing me into the hereafter, if I was lucky. It did come in waves the panic, the realization, the tightness in my chest, the pressure in it and behind my eyes, the fuzziness to my face and fingers, faces, not in any particular order, the deep amber eyes of my ex, my sister's blonde hair, my mother's smooth, pale hands. The latticework of lines on the back of my grandmother's neck in summer. All the people I had to miss, which it turned out wasn't many. Then, crushing regret. Every missed opportunity, every unfinished project... Every regret outlined in the horrid otherworldly glare beaming off that satellite. Somewhere in the distance from my reverie, in the tight corridors of alien canyons, something roared. A collapse or a creature? I had little time to revel in the fact I may not actually die alone before the realization struck me. Based upon that roar alone, I might not have as long to live as I thought. It was at this point I decided to move, to no place in particular, just in the opposite direction of that. I tried to steady my breathing. Difficult to do when trudging across the wastes of this forgotten planet. Or perhaps it was relatively newly born. No sign of any development or occupation by anything other than these dusty orange rocks and tufts of purple grass. No, it was something else entirely Alive and waving like a sea anemone. Or was it just plain anemone? There had to be a reason for the specification, although I'd never heard of a land anemone. Funny how the mind could wander, desperately wanted to, considering the circumstances. What did it matter one way or another? I was no more a biologist than a botanist. And it still didn't bring me any closer to solving the communication problem that stranded me without air on this blasted no-man's land to begin with. Condor 1, come in. I tried again, my voice calmer this time. The buzz I had begun to tune out disappeared altogether. I could have sworn I was getting a little more feedback on top of the static, but still, nothing. I smacked the device with a sigh of sorrow and resignation. The thing, if it was indeed anything, was well behind me now. But I could see the hot orange day fading, the satellite a mere slice of sun, barely obscuring the ship we'd shuttled from. I could jump up and down and wave, but again, little good that would do, just consume more oxygen, had the crash not blown up all our air reserves, hence how Stevens came to be so mangled, I might have been able to just hunker down until the ETA on our return came and went, a search party sure to be on the ground before long hell. With the communications out this long, one would think they might be un-might concerned. But then again, it was to be expected with this much solar interference, and no one was bound to concern themselves much with a routine survey when the real job was the probe for which it was a mere formality. That panic began to seep in again, but I pushed it down. Swallowed it. I might as well make good use of my time. I decided to catalog everything I saw. Weird purple anemone here. Slightly more pink. Magenta even. Anemone there. A weird yellow strand of something. And so on. I don't know why, but I was reminded of all those times people were just swallowed up by circumstance, sinkholes, volcanoes, whole cities crumbling into the sea. Granted, those were a much larger scale, but I felt a certain kinship with them at the mercy of the landscape. Wrong place at the wrong time. Another thing nagged at me just a nibble, but it pieced at me with all the persistence of a hungry rat. Every step, and in turn, potential misstep, that landed me here. My chosen career path versus the one that was convenient at the time and paid more money from the get-go. It really wasn't much different than what landed us here as a race even if that made me and my circumstances continually smaller in the scheme of things. But it was equally hard not to curse human progress that day, the day of my death, unnoticed and without ceremony in the orange desert of Desica 5. Granted, perhaps I was lucky to escape the fate of many during the first contact wars, when we first made the leap from our battered and misused home of Earth. That elicited the first and, most probably, last chuckle I'd be able to muster under the circumstances. What a funny thing. The only one that could unite humanity under one solidified banner— a common enemy, a fear, a hate, a justification for all our carefully cultivated xenophobia. And, perhaps more ironic than even that, I'd almost have preferred a violent death. Somehow, it made more sense than this. I didn't know which was more appropriate. Be careful what you wish for, or famous last words. Didn't matter. My suit had suffered a rupture either way. If I thought the world was funny in color before, my auxiliary systems, making one last feeble push to waste even more oxygen on me, brought starbursts of purple and pink from behind my eyes. Was that what it looked like when capillaries burst? Or was I finally going to see that surge of brain activity before I even got to see the sunset? My chest felt heavy, my breath ragged, and suddenly all I heard in my head was the dulcet reverberation of Debussy's Clair de Lune. And it was as if the stars were in my eyes— and the hot choking sensation stealing every breath just faded away into the darkness. It's hard to convey feeling when I myself am no longer in possession of a physical form, at least not one within the scope of human understanding. Perhaps the final irony in all we have accomplished first destroying our planet, and then finding new ones to colonize and farm is that it is upon death. We are finally able to rise above our limitations, our human frailty, and realize our true potential. Or maybe it's just me riding that final wave of brain activity before I snuff out like the alien sun slipping below the horizon abandoning me to the cold silent desert of human progress
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. You can be a part of helping us keep the show coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get Wicked Fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. Brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers, they bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Also sponsored by Zombie Lips, they make the antidote for the human condition. A topical application that cures eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, the endless ailments we wish never happened. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode Microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com, which is R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes, including links to the work of all the authors featured in today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 711. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Don't forget to rate and review the show. And now, an interview with someone.
2: And uh, welcome, once again, to the Wicked Library's interview corner. Um, I dredged up a character that y'all might be interested in hearing from, but I'll let him introduce himself.
1: Hello, Jeanette. I'm the librarian.
2: Hello, librarian. Thanks for letting me into your library for a little bit with this recorder. I just uh, wanted to ask you a few questions, hoping that you don't kill me in the process. Well,
1: I can't make any promises.
2: (laughs) I'll take that as a positive thing. (laughs) So, librarian, I know you've been here a while. How many books do you think-ish you've read in the time as your tenure as the Wicked Library's librarian?
1: Well, as you know, I'm quite, quite old, but still looking pretty good for a dead guy. They probably read all of them at least five hundred times. I've got lots of time to kill.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can't even. (laughs) 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 So that's me when I normally listen to the librarian is just cracking up. Um, Alex, do you have any questions for the librarian? (laughs) <laughs> just no
1: <laughs> yes but I know what you're thinking hung like a jury
2: <laughs> that's the
1: dirty librarian <laughs>
2: yeah. that's only in the back corner where there's the uh, curtains and stuff
1: let's leave the world of make believe behind for a moment
2: <laughs> librarian is there anything else in your life you wish you had been
1: hmm that's a good question Well, I would have been a fireman. Would have certainly helped from being burned alive. (laughs) Yeah, that may have helped a little bit. (laughs) It might have helped a little bit. Probably wearing something fireproof. Hmm. Mm. I don't know. What would I have been? What could I have been? I could have been a hand model. (laughs) I've always got a bag of them around somewhere. <laughs> um, let's see. What could I? What do you think I could have been, Jeanette?
2: Oh, I don't know. I think in my my mind, I've seen you as a lyrical dancer at some point.
1: Hmm, I do have a live dancer's body. <laughs> Unfortunately, it keeps moving, and I have to hit her again. <laughs>
2: A beautiful duet. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed,
1: I think only one of us gets it, though. I may have to let her go. Maybe especially if she's hanging from a tree.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on that note. <laughs>